0: still stuck with Jerusalem. But remember, when colonists go forth, they not only take their language and their culture so much as there is of it, they also take their troubles and their attitudes and their feuds and their prejudices and everything else. <coughs> and Lehi had full baggage. Remember, his people were specially prepared to transfer the culture from one word to the other. We want to find out now first what happens to Jeremiah, because that's very much in, in the story of Lehi. Remember, Lehi and Jeremiah, we're going to see they're quite closely connected, but this is what's happening in Jerusalem. The reason we're bringing this up is because of some marvelous documents that have appeared out of the blue, and uh, they're, we'll see what they are right from Lehi's day. But first of all, we learned, continuing from where we were, that Jeremiah sent letters around everywhere, and we're, now we're in chapter 29. You can just write down 29 and 1 and so forth. Uh, he letter, sent letters uh, from uh, himself to all the people in Babylon, telling them they might as well settle down for a long stay, they're going to be there for 70 years. He was sending other letters around and uh, we learn in the 25th and 29th verses of this chapter that the high authorities were simply enraged by the liberties he were taking and just sending letters to people here, hither and yon. He was uh, enjoying full freedom of the press here and it made them mad. And uh, so. Jeremiah was ordered next, right at the beginning of the 30th chapter, to write a full book, to write a whole book and send it around. And the theme there is that everyone pays for his own sins. We're in bad times and everything's going, but in the end the Lord will reward you and pay you for your own sins. This is very important, of course, this is one of our articles of faith, not for Adam's transgression. Then we go on and we're told at the beginning of this 32nd chapter that it was in the 10th year of Zedekiah that Jerusalem was besieged, and for safety reasons, for security, Jeremiah was thrown in jail, but it was in palace detention, it was in the palace. The king was rather afraid of Jeremiah. He wanted to get on his good side, but he couldn't do it without prejudicing the princes. Everybody's very tense here. Everybody's very suspicious of everybody else. It's noticed in the 10th year. Now when does the Book of Mormon begin? In the first year of King Zedekiah. This is 10 years after that, you see. Jerusalem didn't fall till after, it's going to be a couple of more years, after Lehi left Jerusalem. He got out in time, but just in time because in uh, 597 it fell, but only for a short time. uh, Then Nebuchadnezzar went on and tried to get into Egypt but uh, Necho was able to keep him out and so he went back. They were having troubles in Babylon so he went back and they felt the trouble was over but it wasn't over. Jeremiah said it's coming back and it it did come back but then uh, to show his confidence in that the, the, the Lord is going to restore them. You notice, we talk about a Jeremiah, that's an expression of somebody who preaches nothing but doom and gloom and horror, but that isn't so with Jeremiah at all. Remember, the last thing he did was saying to Hananiah, well, I hope you're right. No, nothing would please me better than for you to be right, but I'm afraid you're wrong. But still, he says, always you'll notice if you read Jeremiah, if you match the verses equally, it's 50-50, doom and gloom and joy and you are going to return, the Lord will bless you, you will repent, eventually you repent and everything is going to be good. And that's the same with all the prophets. They all say that. Their messages are messages of the, the uh, we would say, the apocalypse of bliss and the apocalypse of woe. And they balance each other all the way through the Bible. You have to have them both. And so the one goes with the other. But Jerusalem was besieged, I say, in Jeremiah for Purpose of security was kept in palace detention, you might say. But to show his confidence, he bought a farm on the land and said, We're going to be here. Uh, he brought a land of his inheritance. Remember, Lehi has a land of it inheritance, which is a farm uh, where the brethren go down to fetch all the rich things back to buy, to bribe the plates from Laban. And uh, his land of inheritance is very important thing. This has come out in another batch of documents that has miraculously come out in the last few years. All these have come out since I've been here to BYU. I mean, amazing documents, except the ones I'm going to talk about. They were just shortly before that, when I was down at Clermont, They came out, and that was sensational. But the new documents that have come out have, have thrown all kinds of light on, on Lehi and his world and his family, too. And so uh, then what happens? Well, how does he buy a farm if he's in prison? He does it through his secretary, Baruch. Baruch is a famous man. We have the books of Baruch, and the, uh, he was his secretary. He went out where Zerah couldn't. So Baruch was an important man, too. Later on, they say, well, the trouble is you're letting Baruch lead you around by the nose. He's the one that's giving all these prophecies, really. Jeremiah really just represents Baruch. But Jeremiah himself was an influential man. You notice he gets around and he writes these letters and he's very bold and he goes in and out of the palace and he has property everywhere. And the same thing with Baruch. These were like Lehi. See, these are important men, these prophets. Uh, They're not just the, the characters in the long night robe that go around holding up a placard, say the world is about to come to an end, the favorite cartoon of the New Yorker, but uh, no, that wa- they weren't that kind. These men knew what they were doing, and Jerome, uh, I, rather Jeremiah was an important man. His family's his daughter married into royalty and all sorts of things. Well, uh, so to show his confidence, he bought a, a farm, a land of his inheritance, and, uh, but he was enraged by the dirty deal they gave the servants. See, when the first time Nebuchadnezzar came there, They did the usual thing. When everything dissolves, you don't want to be responsible for anything. You don't want to be responsible for your servants, their their protection, their food, so they let them all go. Every man for himself, go. So they released all their servants, all their slaves, and let them go. When the danger passed, they immediately sent out the police to round them up again, brought them all back in home again, and put them into service again, uh, in slavery in most cases. And of course this was against the law of Israel anyway. But Jeremiah was furious at that. He really raised something at that. This is a sort of dirty tricks. You notice the, uh, and speaking of the, of the Jeremiah, the, uh, I say of, of the Jeremiah. The deal with the servants. He says, "Now that shows what's wrong." You see, the essence of wickedness is, is meanness. A passage from Don, uh, John Don that uh, that uh, John F. Kennedy used to like to quote: "A dog starved at his master's gate portends the ruin of the state. If a man lets his dog starve, it is that kind of person." You see, or as Heraclitus would put it, "Ethos anthropodemon," a man's character is his fate. You can tell what is going to happen. What's going to happen if you know who the man is, the kind of character he has? He's going to lead to a tragic <laughs> end or a happy end, as the case may be. And this is it. You see, it's the character. We, well, we read the passages, the, t- the kind of people they were. That's what, that was what was wrong. It wasn't the, the Babylonians or the Egyptians that worried them. It was the people themselves, or as, as Solon says, these people themselves have brought, upon the, have brought this ruin upon their state. They're full fled lust, they never can get enough, they rob from each other, steal from the state, like bandits and so forth, it goes on. Well, it's the same thing here in the world. That kind of world, notice the whole, it's a world prosperity and it's a world civilization too, just as today, no matter what city you go to in the world now, how disappointing. You land in the same airport and you're seeing the same high rises and you get in the same traffic jams if you're a little late and so forth wherever you go is the darndest thing. That's a world civilization. It was very different when I was younger. It was when you went to China or, or to the islands, <laughs> it was so different it was just another world. You see people wrote books about that sort of thing, that big sale, travel books, and but now it's all the same. And it was the same thing in Lehi's day too. Wherever you went, you would have Aramaic or you would have Egyptian. Now, they were the things that were spoken. At this time, every important Ruler, a king, had two secretaries. He had an Aramaic secretary to write Aramaic, which was universal; was spoken in Egypt and all over this area. And you had an Egyptian secretary who would write Egyptian, because it was the Egyptian Empire too. Remember the great—this is the great 26th Dynasty—that was a great commercial empire. So these things are going on, and they beget this spirit of greed and meanness and so forth. And this is all reflected all the way through Jeremiah. But what happens to him? uh, And uh, he dictates a book then, he says he circulates books and well first of all well, in the thirty-fifth chapter he tests the integrity of the Rechabites. The Rechabites are very important people. The thirty-fifth chapter of Jeremiah tells us how he deals with the Rechabites. But they, they come out earlier in the history of Israel and th- this tells us he sets them up to the Jews as an example of integrity and they are given a permanent position in the temple, the Rechabites. Jonadab ben Rechab, well, he, we're told here, Jonadab ben Rechab, well, let's look, look at the 35th chapter because the uh, Lehi and his family were Rechabites. They, they joined that, that particular movement. They were the people that go out into the wilderness and try to live the gospel in its purity out there. So we find in the, fi- give your <coughs> the 35th chapter of Jeremiah is the official history, you might say, of the, Jeremiah, uh, of the uh, Rechabites. And this is it, you see. And the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. See, this is before the days of Zedekiah, this was the earlier time. He said, go to the house of the Rechabites and speak to them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers and give them to drink. So he brought the Rechabites into the house of the Lord and uh, offered them wine, but they refused to drink wine because they had taken a covenant they wouldn't drink wine. Therefore he set before the sons of the Rechabites pots full of wine, and said unto them, Drink ye wine. The, uh, and incidentally we have here a very important uh, aspect of history at this time that has always been neglected until very recent years, namely the formation of societies, of cults, of sects, of conventicles. Like-minded people would form groups which to preserve their existence sometimes from the police and so forth would uh, would become secret. You find, well. The early Re- Roman republican history after this is full of it, but it's so with the Greek things too, because you were suspicious of such si- societies. The emperors were always ordered them to be broke up. The famous rescript of Hadrian is about the Christians. They're suspicious of that sort of thing because they hold meetings which they don't allow people in. They have these sacraments. We don't know what goes on there and so forth. And notice the Rechabites in the fourth verse. I brought them to the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan. Now this was a, separ- a separate secret Room in the temple reserved to a certain society that met there, the sons of Hanan. And this is common. We get this from the New Temple Scroll, just discovered in 1950, which was by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Masa'iyah, the son of Shalom, the sheep of the door. See the doorkeeper of the temple in charge of these. Notice here are three various t- chambers of the temple reserved to particular families or groups for their particular use, just as we have ceiling rooms in the temple, and special rooms for certain things. Yes? Were the Rechabites Israelites Yes, they were, right from the first they were Israelites. But this is what they do. Were they not Levites? Then? They were not Levites, no. They served in the temple. They were not of the priestly line at all, Jonadab <laughs> and Rechab. And this is what they do, and they said, We will drink no wine, for, Jonabab, the son of, for Jonab, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons, forever. Yes. And with integrity they had, they had observed that rule. Neither shall ye build a house, nor sow seed. They didn't sow wheat because they said wheat was the what Adam did after he fell. He sowed the field and by the sweat of his brow he raised his crops. And he says they wished to return to the state of man in his... There have been sects and groups in every age that wanted to do this. Go back and live in the primitive, the way man was in his state of innocence before he fell, so they would not cut their hair. And, they were, and John the Baptist is identified with one of these groups out in the by well, the Dead Sea Scrolls puts them out by uh, along the Jordan there. But they went out and they so they don't cultivate wheat and they don't live in houses, they don't live in the in the Beitish, uh, in the Beitel Hajar. They live in the Beitishayr, the houses of hair, goats' hair houses. Yes. Yes, they were utopians. That's exactly what they were. Many utopians have, had to have tried to do that very same thing, like in America, Robert Owen and so forth. They go out doing that same. And we have groups, splinter groups in the church all the time going out like that and living by themselves. I was very, very well acquainted with, with Clendenning and the Order of Aaron. I haven't heard from them recently. They were very fine people, went clear out by Baker and thought they'd live in their primitive simplicity and so forth. But the, uh, Ye neither shall ye build a house, nor sow seed, nor plant a vineyard, nor have any, but all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye, were, where ye be strangers. They see, they're strangers on earth because the earth is in its polluted state. Man has fallen. They don't want to share in that way of things. They're emphasizing the yawning gulf that exists between life on earth as it should be and life on earth as it is. Always these people trying to use a direct method to get back. But these people showed, I say, showed this integrity, So that thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rehob, <laughs> nor to build houses for us to dwell in, neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed, but we have dwelt in tents, and have obeyed, and done according to them. Now this, here's an example for you, says Jeremiah. And of course, Lehi's going to do that thing too. They went out, remember, they weren't intending to cross the sea or anything like that. They thought they'd be living in the <coughs> desert the rest of their days. We, we get that, we'll get that pretty soon, I hope, if we ever get them out of town. Uh, the... Did uh, you no, he wasn't. He he was no doubt a friend of Jonadab and Rechab because he was not of Jonadab but of the Rechabites because he, he was close to Jeremiah. He was in the Jeremiah party, you might say. But here we say the words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine. Well, they repeated again in the fourteenth verse. Notwithstanding, then he says, "This is Jeremiah speaking," and it perf- they have performed unto this day. They drink none, but they obey their father's commandment. Notwithstanding, I have spoken unto you rising early and speaking, but ye hearken not unto me. Because the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father which he commanded them, but this people have not hearkened unto me. See, this wasn't the command of the Lord, it was their father's idea, but they at least, it, they at least kept that. And for that reason they say, I will bless them, and they will always have a place in the temple. So they became servants in the temple. The reason they were in town on this occasion was, it tells us here, that they, uh, notice in the 11th verse, when Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon came up into the land that we said, come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we will dwell at Jerusalem. They came within the walls because they would have been wiped out if they'd stayed out in the desert. The armies were going through. So for safety they made a temporary flight to Jerusalem and there they were given a permanent job in the temple. And Jeremiah makes an example of them. and. Uh, Therefore saith the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before me forever, Uh, still with him. Then uh, Jeremiah dictates a book this time, and it's read before all the people in the temple courtly, in the temple. Notice a man gets around and he has access and they're always trying to stop him or discourage him, but he has influence, he has friends, and the, the, uh, we're told a little later on, the king is afraid of the people, and he's, he's just like the time of the New Testament, they're afraid of Jesus and he's also afraid of Jeremiah, and the princes are out to get him. Now, uh, the Jeremiah dictates all the books to the people, I say, and they read it to him. and then. He takes the same book to the palace and reads it before a group of princes. They want to hear it. Now these princes are the sarim. This is an interesting thing. They're always called the princes in the King James translation, but the word sarim, as the tsar, the is the same, the plural of course, the sarim, is the elders. It's used in all Semitic languages for great and old. And, 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 and in Egyptian, if you see a man with a staff like this, a great man, he is a sar. He is a great man, or he is aware great man, the Indo-European were, or he's a Semsu. He's one of the elders. They're called the elders, they're the Sarim, our word sir is related to it, a term of respect and so forth. They were the important men, they were the chiefs, they were the big men. And uh, as I say in the Book of Mormon it's translated correctly, elders. In the King James it's translated as princes. Uh, Princes they were not necessarily. They were influential landholders, there was quite a body of them and so forth. They were not of royal blood few of them were of royal blood, so they were not princes, but uh, they were the Sarim. They're the ones that, that uh, what's his name, was out with by, by night, that, the, uh, that Ishmael was out with by night when uh, holding secret sessions, when Nephi met him and took him out to their camp, that, and swore him in to be a member of their society out in the desert, and he decided to stay there the rest of his days. Well, anyway, He takes it and reads it before the princes, and they don't like it at all. And uh, his representative is Yehuda. It's Yehuda that remember he's in prison a good deal of the time. And Yehuda goes. He always has men who will run errands for him. Yehuda takes his letter and reads it to the princes. They don't like that at all. And. uh, they want to hear a special reading and Baruch <laughs> then explains it to them and gives a lecture and they report to the king. They say, we can't go on with this. In the, it's all the 36th verse. When they heard what Yehuda had to say uh, to get the book, and uh, the king wants to hear the book. And they say, "We think, they say, tell the king, you think, we think you should hear this. So Yehudi goes and reads the book to the king and there's a very moving uh, and very convincing picture if any of you have been to Merceda, you know the lower palace is the king's winter palace there. And if you've been to Jericho, there's a big mound at Jericho where it was Herod's winter palace, down in the warm air of Jericho, very much warmer than Jerusalem, quite near, just a few miles away, but uh, down lower. The kings in their winter palaces there. Uh, the deserts were popular winter palaces. The king was in his winter palace here when this was read to him, and it said he had his. Uh, the, there was a fire burning in the fireplace on the hearth, and he ordered. He heard the book read, and he says, "Give it here." took a knife and he cut it to bits and threw it in the fire and, uh, and he burnt it up. And uh, that's the way he was going to treat it. He, they were enraged by the liberties that Jeremiah has taken. So, Jeremiah, what does he do? He makes a duplicate and continues to circulate it around. He is irrepressible. No wonder he's asking for trouble. You say, how is he going to survive here? Well, he's the only one that does survive. Very interesting lesson in survival. Yes? What does the book contain? I didn't Oh, it contained a denunciation, the usual things we read to you see, the denunciation of the ways of the Saruman and especially that they're not to put their trust in Egypt, and they might just as well go along with Nebuchadnezzar, because that's their only hope. That's the best thing that could happen to them. And so uh, he makes a duplicate. And, uh, the Bab- and sure enough, what happens? Necho's army returns from Egypt, and the Babylonian force, which is camped at the walls, takes off Takes to their heels to escape. They think the great power and reputation of it. Uh, Necho's really built things up now. He's a powerful man and uh, king of Egypt. And he comes in, he's coming in again, and the Babylonians take off and say, ha ha, see the Babylonians are gone. You were wrong. Jeremiah was wrong. After all, we, we trust in Egypt, and that's the right thing. That's Lemon and Lemuel. They were on the Egyptian side. But uh, Jeremiah says in the eighth verse of the 37th chapter, it says, don't worry, they'll be back. And uh, it's the Egyptians that accuse him of treason. He's weakening the people, this is not gonna do, they, go, uh, they, they complain. And so now the Sarim put him in prison in a dungeon this time. Uh, and uh, it's a real beauty. The king consults him in secret. Uh, this isn't the worst dungeon. They have their private dungeons and, and uh, the king brings him out and consults with him in secret He says, don't let the people find out about this and don't let the princes. See, everybody wants is sort of shining up to to Jeremiah, but don't want the others to know they are. Everybody's getting nervous, nobody feels secure, Everybody changing sides and so forth. And uh, they put him into the dungeon, we're told here, because he was guilty of uh, weakening the hands of the people. And this is the very same expression we're going to find out in the letters that come out and how they were doing this, what was happening. Well, it says weakening. Uh, Yedei Haim, with Yedei yes. He weakened the hands of the army, the military, he discouraged the military, and he was spreading uh, discouragement and dissension among the common people in the country and everywhere like that. And that's the reason the king, but the king keeps him palace arrest, but the princes, notice the intrigue here, have him dragged out secretly, and they put him in a dungeon. But what a dungeon it is now. Uh, it was full of sewage, you were told, of tea. And it said, he sank down into the mire and the mud. It was mud and filth, and that was terrible. They didn't give him anything to eat. It was very low down, they had to lower him by ropes down a deep cistern, and at the bottom it was filled with sewage and mud and filth, and he said he, he, uh, he, uh, he sank into it. What a place to be, you see, and he nearly died. He, he, if he hadn't been snatched out of there in time, that was as low as you can go, I mean, when you're kept in a sewer like that, uh, and uh, not given proper nourishment or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, See that's that's the greatest act of contempt possible, and who was it who protested? It was a person by the, Evid who was a black man, and a eunuch. He was an Ethiopian servant in the palace there, and that black man had the courage to go to the king and rebuke him and said, "What are you doing to Jeremiah? That's no way to treat any human being," and the king was ashamed of himself and ordered Jeremiah brought out, because this black man says, "We don't do that to people," and. Uh, they let down the ropes, it said, and they cast threw down all sorts of dirty rags and stuff for him to stand on, and then he put the rags under his arm because he was so skinny, and they pulled him up out of the hole. But he would have starved, frozen in a short time if that had gone on at all. No way to keep him. Then immediately thereafter the king has a secret session with Jeremiah, but he says and he tells Jeremiah that he's afraid of the people, because things are looking bad here. And he's also afraid of the princes. In the nineteenth verse he's afraid of the people, now he's afraid of the Sarim, as I say, the prince, is a better word for it. And now the princes come to consult Jeremiah. They say, now, look, this is things are beginning to look serious. And uh, then Jerusalem falls and Zedekiah flees. It's a tragic story there in the 39th verse. He, he flees to Jericho. They catch up with him at Jericho. Down, we've got the signs here. He flees, this is Jerusalem. <laughs> he flees to Jericho. Jericho's right over here, you see. Oops, oh, this is Jericho. Well, I got a bit of Jerusalem on there, hadn't I? I've got Kiryam Yekarim. Here's, oh, this is Jerusalem. Well, come on. Because this is Jericho over here. just down here. It's on this side of the river. That's Musa Baalami's farm there. That's just two miles from the river. And this is the city of Jericho. It's much warmer. Well, there's 3,000, nearly a 4,000 foot drop there. And he's caught up there and he's taken up, up north to... Riblah on the Orontes, and there he has to see all his sons put to death before his eyes. And after that is over, he is blinded and taken away to Babylon. He couldn't be more reduced. Some of you may have seen yesterday the uh, the Oedipus, Oedipus Rex on the. Who? Who? Where? Oh, it was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's troops. uh, Nebuchadnezzar's commander came and caught up with him in Jericho, and then they took him up to Riblah which is headquarters. He'd made his winter headquarters on, at Ribla in the Orontes. It was a famous, a favorite place because it was central to the whole. Remember, they're not just concerned with Jerusalem. They're concerned with all of Syria here, Babylon keeping the whole western empire, just as it was the same thing with the Egyptians. They made, Aneko had made Ribla his center too when he was in power there. So he takes him up to Ribla, and uh, there he puts all his sons to death except one. And there we get these new, these new That's some... My writing gets worse and worse and I get less patience. Uh, And Nebuchadnezzar comes in and immediately starts correcting abuses. The Lord said that was going to happen. He, he, took, he takes away, they used to think he just took away a few of the aristocrats. That's, that's not so. He took away a tremendous mass of people. He left a, a lot of poor people on the land, and uh, they distributed and started working it among themselves. And he gave Jeremiah a free hand to go wherever he wanted. He says, you go where you want, do what you want, it's in the 40th chapter. So he joins Jedaliah at Mizpah. And Jedaliah is the one among whom the remnant of the Jews left behind are being organized, and... Nebuchadnezzar puts him in charge. He's Nebuchadnezzar's man in charge back in Jerusalem, was Jedaliah. But he organizes the people into the country. Up. And, uh, yeah. Jedaliah uh, is, uh, is Jedaliah. And uh, but here we have, no, you know the people are, down, are out here, and here we have, this is Amon. at that time it was called Rabbah, but it's Amman, because this is the land of Ammonites, this is Ammon, And the king of the Ammonites, this is the way they intrigue. he wants to, he sees a chance, now that, that Nebuchadnezzar has a gun, to strike at the Babylonians by having Jedaliah murdered. And he sends, he sent a terrorist squad. They were really terrorists. They, they were high nobles though. They were invited to, to a banquet. This is the normal procedure. And uh, it was uh, Elishama and Ishmael, and a man called Ishmael, and uh, Jedaliah, who was Nebuchadnezzar's representative, invited them to a diplomatic banquet when they had him murdered, when they murdered him. And uh, then they felt nervous and Ishmael fled for safety to Mizpah and he went back and joined with the Ammonites. The king of Ammon did all that. He, was, he, uh, eh, he suborned this assassination. He sent the nobles down to, to perform it. And this terrorism, was, it's, it's always been the pattern here. This is old stuff, you see, as far as that goes. And uh, he, he not only moves out to Mizpah, but he forces the Ammonites, he forces the remnant of the Jews to go with him, as many as he could. See, this Ishmael was in charge of it. And then, but, another story, Jedaliah had an aide whose name was Johanan, He was John, he, he was the assistant, he was first right-hand man to Jedaliah, whose business was to, now he's going to to punish the murderers of Jedaliah, and he takes after them. So they flee to the court at Amman, where they would, where they would be safe. And, uh, but he catches up with them, he frees the people, and leads them all back so they don't, he goes into the palace but the people all follow him back and he goes back south heading for Egypt and uh, this is Jerusalem out here, well you come up just 28 miles here, a little further north like this and it overlooks, you can see the whole Dead Sea from it, so this is Jerusalem but just six miles south of Jerusalem is Bethlehem and he leads the people and they make a big camp at Bethlehem. It's like one of these misplaced person camps. They have tremendous ones now, those, those east of the Jordan up here, I visited the ones at uh, at. Uh, at Jericho and uh, at Amman, well, in the desert out here, and they had them, these huge uh, uh, camps of misplaced persons, and exactly what they had. Israel is all misplaced persons, all living in tents like the Rechabites now, and they, in this huge camp at Bethlehem. And then Johanan asked Jeremiah, Well, we're on our way to Egypt. Isn't that the safe place to go? He says, Don't go to Egypt. You'll be despised. There's all sorts of tension there. Don't go to Tanis because the The uh, the Egyptian, see this is rib, this is uh, Rafia right on the border here, because the at Tanis, this is Sais, this is the Saitic dynasty. But at Tanis, though, is another dynasty. They're very hostile here. He says you'll be despised. They'll give you a bad time. You're good as uh, you're as good as dead if you go into Egypt. But they insisted on going, and they went down into to Tanis, and he was right. Uh, But Jeremiah kept saying, "Stay here. Everything is all right if you'll just stay here." Uh, Egypt is going to be destroyed later, as it was, and they will all hate you when you go there. And uh, they said, this is all just Baruch who's put you up to this. Uh, we are all going to Tanis anyway. And, and Jeremiah went to Tanis with them. He ended up in Egypt too. And many of them went way up the, the Rhine and the Rhine right up the Nile. Uh, and uh, Jeremiah now sends a, letters, a letter to the Jews in Egypt, all the Jews, he's always sending letters around, uh, circulars. Uh, and the whole thing is, in these last chapters, the 41st chapter and chap- 44th and 47th chapter, is that they haven't given up their old ISIS cult. He says, you were, you were practicing your Egyptian religion back in Palestine, back in Jerusalem, and that was the thing the Lord rebuked you for. Now you're in Egypt and you're really throwing yourselves. In. but it was always the women that are doing. It. The women are preparing the cakes and burning the sacred lights and, and going through all the, the rites and so forth. That We have some very interesting things. We have a, a marvelous writing by the daughter of King Semiticus II, uh, Neferi Bebre, who. Uh, to, uh, him to Isis and, uh, and an account, a, a mythical account of, well, a ritual account of certain doings in the cult of Isis. We have that. The interesting thing, we have it written by the king's own daughter, uh, and this was the king who was the king in Lehi's day. This is later time now. So then finally the, his last word to 247 is, your mercenaries are not going to be any help to you at all, and so the, the, they were beaten. Now we have to get along here. Say that you were uh, you are going to, uh, in order of battle, you're going to try to give a daily report of what the enemy's strength and position is. And they're right nearby and things are under pressure. And so you have to do some interrogating. And you pick up an officer from the, uh, they bring him in from the, uh, he's not, he's in the Jewish army, he's, he's in Zedekiah's army, but he's a mercenary. They're nearly all mercenaries anyway, so they're always changing sides. And this man would say would be a carrion <coughs> with some, uh, some Greek troops under him who had rented himself out. <coughs> so he's not under any particular obligation of loyalty to the king except the, the oath he took with the contract and just to get paid and you offer to pay him more. So you won't worry about the Geneva Convention too much and you're going to start asking him questions. Now this is the Lakeish letters I'm talking about here, but this is what it is now. We have letters from uh, in the Bible and so forth, the, the text in the Bible. We have 8,000 texts of the New Testament, but none of them is earlier than the fourth 3rd century, 4th century, they're tiny fragments from the 2nd, 3rd century, but that's all there is. The oldest text we have of the Old Testament of the Torah is the Ben Asher Codex from the ninth century, and, uh, but until the Dead Sea Scrolls came, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found a complete Isaiah, a thousand years older than any other text known. Now we can see what kind of changes had been made and so forth. But what if you'd found some letters from the time of Lehi that weren't copies of copies of copies? That's the only way the scripture, or any ancient literature comes down to us. Mostly 14th, 15th century, century documents. They're copies from earlier copies. If you can get a 10th or 11th century. That's great stuff. But these are, these are copies. But, ah, here's something. What if we had a collection of, of letters, of personal rep- reminiscences of... Of troubles and so forth from Lehi's own time and place from Jerusalem. Uh, the original letters, well, we have them between 1935 and 1938 at Lakish, where the Lakish letters now. This is this is Lakish here, it's 25 miles. This is Jerusalem. Well, I got it. No, it's not too far down. Well, this should have been a little the whole thing a little higher up here. No, that's not too bad. And uh, this is Jerusalem. This is Azeka. Azeka. And this is Lachish here, Lachish. It's pronounced Lachish in the Old Testament, of course. La, but call it Lachish. Lachish was the most important center in, uh, in Western, in all of Western, it, it just kept the whole fort. It was on the main road from Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem over here. I keep thinking I've got it too far from the Dead Sea, but I haven't. These, these places are so close together, it fools you, see. You can stand out here and see the whole length of the Dead Sea. And uh, this is Hebron over here. Uh, it's right on the main road to Jerusalem. They would take down to Gaza here. This is Gaza. And then you'd follow the, they call it the Sea Road. Either here, this is uh, this is Joppa, and this is Ashkelon, and this is Ashdod, these are the Phoenician centers. But this is Gaza down here, the Gaza Strip, with uh, Gerar here, the, the capital of, Gerar, uh, the capital of Gaza from ancient times. Remember Abraham, Sarah, Abraham's wife, was co- coveted by the king of, of Gerar. And so you take the coast road, and it's only from it down. It's only 93 miles, it's flat coast all the way, you're in Egypt before you know it. So here, these Lachish letters were discovered and uh, these priceless documents from the time of Lehi, which were written in Lakish, the most important fort on the road between Jerusalem. So uh, you're outside with the Babylonian army, you're outside and the, the, this officer comes in, you're gonna quiz him about these Lachish letters. So you say, look, uh, I hear there's some, uh, there's some military documents at Lachish, aren't there? And he says, well, yes, I've heard about them. In fact, I was, uh, I was int- uh, an intelligence clerk in the, in the office there. What kind of an office? Well, it was the guardhouse. Where were these letters kept? They were kept in the guardhouse? Well, it was really the gatehouse. Well, would you describe this gatehouse to me? We'd have pictures of it and everything if it hadn't been for the great plunder going on. Uh, describe the gatehouse. Well, it was a, it was a, st- a sturdy building, the size of this room. Two stories, upstairs, officers' quarters. Downstairs were offices. Oh, says Prafat, oh, for questioning people going in and out. We have to do this these dangerous times we, and we you have records there. Well, we were keeping letters there, he says they're not the regular do they contain military material? Well, I don't need to talk about that. Well, after all, you're a Greek, and uh, your Zedekiah is finished. Uh, we can make it worth your while. Well, he says, well, yes, there were military documents, but they were letters. Well, what were they doing there? Well, they were being kept there for evidence in a trial that was coming up. Well, who was being tried? Well, it was Yehoshayahu. Yah- oh, by the way, who was in charge of this guardhouse? It was Joush, Joush. And uh, this is rendered by Torxener, who is the editor of the letters here, as Joush. This is an interesting thing here. These touches come up all the time. Now, this is from, from Lehi's time, and the name is Josh or Josh. Now, when Joseph Smith, when the Book of Mormon tells us we learn Moroni that was a, a commander, a Nephite commander by the name of Josh who commanded 10,000 men in the field. Uh, that's up at Comorre, you see. Everybody laughed. They said, well, there's the hick from the sticks. The name Joshua was Josh. You see. The name is not found in the Bible. This is the point. This name doesn't occur in the Bible. And here we have a commander at, uh, in the Lachish letters whose name was Josh. And uh, oh, there's another score for the Book of Mormon. Well, anyway, you say, well, what was uh, this Yahu-Jahu? Where does he come from? He comes from Kiryath Ya'arim. This is Kiryath Ya'arim up here. Uh, Ezekiah, Kiryath Ya'arim is a little way out here. I put in a Q there. Kiryath means a settlement or village and Ya'arim was the the founder. And this village, I'll just mark it with a Q, is a very important uh, settlement on the way. Azika's is further out, did I put it out further, yeah, Azika's is a little further out, Kuresh Agarim is a little nearer Jerusalem, a little under it. I haven't got them s- steep enough there. Well, uh, And he says, uh, well how did he get into it? He's a commander in that village up there. Well he is suspected of having opened some secret military information that was being sent to the commander at Lachish. The commander at Lakeish was Josh, and this man, Hosea, Yehoshua, Hoshua, uh, was, uh, was in charge of this other fortress between here and Jerusalem, and uh, he was charged with reading these letters. Well, why shouldn't he read them? Well, because they were top secret. Well, what did he have with them? Well, he, as the commander of the fort halfway, he was supposed to send them through, that's all. He was just supposed to, to uh, transmit the letters to get them sent on their way. Uh, How were the letters sent? They were taken by carrier, they were taken by courier, sometimes by little kids from one place to another so they wouldn't be suspected, and they were carried to Kuriath Ya'arim, and then he was just supposed to forward them without reading them. What makes you think he was reading them? Well, because somebody tipped off uh, the prophet Uriah. Now the prophet Uriah, who's mentioned, remember the 26th chapter of Jeremiah, Uh how he was chased to Egypt and so forth, and he's mentioned here by name, here's Uriah, because Uriah was hightailing it to Egypt. He left. Kiryath well, Where was Uriah from? Well, he was originally from Kiryath Yarim and uh, uh, his father has that funny name. What is his father's name? Well, I'll see it in a second. Uh, We know there was hanky-panky going on because he was tipped off and took off for Egypt, and his father, now this we get from the Lakeish letters, his father who had a strange name of Ya'arim. Went off from Kiryath Ya'arim with the adjutant general and the principal inspector of military fortifications to the palace in Jerusalem for a special audience with the king. Well, obviously, he'd gone up to plead for leniency for his son, because remember, we're told that they chased him clear down to Egypt, they brought him back and put him to death in the palace. So, And here his father goes up. Now we're having contemporary letters telling about this from the very time going on. And so. Uh, you go on questioning the man, and, uh, oh, incidentally, this is, uh, I have a rather lengthy summary of things here in an ensign for December 1981. But uh, this is the way it goes then. And then they say, well, now, wait a minute. I've heard that the guard uh, house that the guardhouse there was burned, it colla- oh, yes, he said it burned, it collapsed. Well, he says, well, I guess that's good le- right records, isn't it? They've, they've gone. No, they're, they're not destroyed. Well, did you take him out? Did you rescue him? No, we didn't. Well, how could they preserve? We wrote them on potsherds. Are you crazy? These big, clumsy potsherds, you don't keep records on them. Why not on papyrus? I said, this is all in it. He says, because we couldn't get papyrus. And he wanted to say dummy, you see, when at that point he said, well, why not? Don't you know your army cut the road to Egypt? We can't get anything over over the Egyptian road anymore. So we wrote on potsherds. It's a good way. They're convenient and short. People always write on potsherds. They were kept there, and when the tower collapsed, instead of wiping these out, it made them it baked them and made them permanent. These are permanent records now. They'll last as long as the, as the uh, fossils up in the hill, your, your trilobites and your brachiopods that you find up in Rock Canyon, millions of years old, and yet the fine details are still on them. Well, so it will be with these lakeish letters. They're on burnt, baked clay now, and they'll last as long as anything. So we have them. And so, so we don't have to worry about that. Well, how can I get hold of these? Well, we go up there. Now, Starkey started excavating in 1935. In 1938, he was had business to go back to Jerusalem. On the way, he was held up by bandits and killed. This is typical of of life in uh, Palestine, the 1930s. Never been secure. All this going on, everybody out for himself, and it's a dangerous place, it always has been. And as you know, it is today, the daily murders that go on in in Israel now, routine. So these were written then. Well, what about the men? (laughs) They survived and written on potsherds and so forth. and they were in the guardhouse. They were being kept as evidence, pending the military trial of this Hoshiyahu. Um, and he was being court-martialed, suspected of treason, because he let the letters go through. You may have read them because he let the... Uh, because he tipped off, the, somebody tipped off Uriah. He said, we don't know whether he did or not. That's where we're gonna have the court martial for. far. And uh, Uriah was really in danger. The king's soldiers were put on his trail and he was fleeing to Egypt. He was fleeing because he was wanted by the police in Egypt, and he was in, in uh, Jerusalem, and he was wanted by the police because he had been discouraging, because he had been weakening the hands. It says of the military this is about him of the military and the people in the country. Well, it's exactly what happens. Remember, at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, and in that year came many prophets prophesying unto the people that they must repent, or the great city of Jerusalem be destroyed. Now that was the message of doom and gloom, which was regarded by the king, of course, as, as treasonable, uh, saying we should take sides with Babylon, and they we going to be destroyed. And that's what Uriah was guilty of. He was guilty as treason, of weakening the hands, of spreading dissension, of spreading disinterest, discouragement uh, throughout the, the country, both in the country and in the city. And that's exactly what Lehi was charged with. Remember when he went at an earlier time, a couple of years before this, he went out and tried to preach, remember, and he had to skip out of town to save his life. And the police were after him, remember, it tells us that the palace police sent out by Laban tried to overtake him, but they outran him. They, they got away from him. So all this is in the Book of Mormon too, but these Lachish letters, filling in the picture here. And then, and uh, they were considered subversives because they were opposing the official policy and undermining morale by their preaching. As Jeremiah puts it, the princes said unto the king, that's really the Sarim, we beseech thee, let this man be put to death, for he weakeneth the hands of the men in the city that remain in the city, and the hands of all the people, in speaking such words unto them. Oh yes, the hands of all the people. That was in the 38th chapter. And Lakish letter number number 6 tells us, the words of the prophet are not good, they are liable to loosen the hands. And the Book of Mormon adds this other one, the same year the prophets came, they must repent, or the great city of Jerusalem be destroyed. This was the disheartening news, you say, that uh, discourages people and is regarded as subversive. Now we can date them with perfect accuracy by the layers, uh, the place burned down, it caved in. And well, uh, the man goes on, we go on questioning the officer, well, where were these records kept? Well, they were kept in the lower, in the lower room. And uh, how do you know that the, the thing caved in, the roof smashed everything? No, he said, we stored them under the benches around the side of the room so they wouldn't be in the way. We have these benches. People come waiting to be re- examined, have their passports stamped and so forth. Uh, so that's where they were. They were under the benches. And uh, one found, they found 18 letters, and then a little later on they found six letters. And here were these letters telling us everything that was going on. And uh, this exciting news, such as we can no longer see the uh, something terrible has happened. We can no longer see the signal fires of a because they were... that was. Almost halfway between there and Jerusalem, and that's the way they sent messages by signal fires by code. And the, when the when the messages stopped coming from Ezekiel they knew that Lachish was the very last city to fall. It fell after Jerusalem. It fell after all the others. It hung on longer than any other. So this gives us an eyewitness account of what was happening right up to the end, as uh, things get worse and worse. And uh, yes, uh, Shemanyahu. That's not a hard name to remember. The letter four tells us, man. Uriah's father, Shemanyahu, went up from Uriah's village to Jerusalem on urgent business, accompanied by the chief inspector of military outposts. And Troxanus says to use his influence with the king without any doubt on behalf of his son. These prophets weren't aged men with long beards. They were young men and vigorous men, as Lehi was in the prime of life at this time. Uh, furthermore, the, the scribe of Jeremiah keeps assigning the Uriah, the Uriah episode to the time of Jehoiakim, 608 to 597. The scribe says it's in the early period, it's in Lehi's period, it's contemporary with Lehi. See. Uh, scholars agreed now that Jeremiah 27, 1 and 3 that it belongs not to Jehoiachim's reign, but it actually belongs to the, first, the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. So the Book of Mormon is right after all. They used to think it was off-wrong chronologically, because Uriah appears in the time of Jehoiachim and not Zedekiah, but now it is in the time of Zedekiah that he appears, the Lakish letters show that. Well, so it goes. As to the writing, though, know, there, notice, they contain 90 lines of clear writing. This is quoting beautiful language in highly important context. The language is pure Hebrew, most purely, rese- closely resembling that of the books of Jeremiah and King. So the, the writings on the, on, the go- on the plates and so forth, though they were in the Egyptian idiom, and that's important because the king at this time has an Egyptian secretary too. And, uh, and this is a surprise. They show us to everyone's surprise that in 600 BC, writing was almost as common, no- almost common knowledge and not a secret art known only to a few. They also show the Egyptian scribal tradition at that time exerted a major influence in the official record keeping of the Near East. The king who attacked Jerusalem from the East at this time brought two scribes with him as he did on every expedition, as we learn from A.T. Olmsted's work. The chief with his stylus and tablets, and his assistant with a papyrus roll, or Egyptian parchment, and Egyptian pen. So you will write all the records in two languages. You kept it in Egyptian, and Egyptian, of course, would take up only about a third the space to write, as the Aramaic would. Aramaic was clumsy, and you would have to take up a lot of space. But Egyptian, because they introduced right in the 26th Dynasty, then at that time, at that time only, Demotic became official, became the official court writing, and it's a very short shorthand. It's it beats our shorthand. It's you can get things in little space. So when we see those. Transcripts and so forth, looking like shorthand. Well, it was that. And they keep telling us that we would write in Hebrew if we had room on the plates, but we, we're using this special script, we're using the Egyptian way of writing, so we can get all this stuff in. And since it's going to be translated by the gift and power of the Lord, there are no philological questions raised at all. It's nice, we don't imagine if we had the plates, how we would argue to the end of time about what made what. We could never agree on anything. We'd be fighting till the cows came home and there'd be no point to it at all. Fortunately, the angel took the plates back so we can't fight about them, but he gave us the text. And uh, we can fight about that if we want, but it's a very clear, very lucid text, isn't it? And he find it necessary to possess an Aramaic scribe to deal with the one, and Egyptian to deal with the other. The proper names are interesting. They nearly all end in eon. This is an interesting thing because there was, there was King Josiah, remember, who began this line. He was the great-great-grandfather the of Zedekiah, uh, the, uh, who began the line. Uh, the Ayah names. He was the one who reformed the law. Now Moses was the first reformer of the law, and uh, Josiah was the great restorer and reformer of the law. And all the names at that time suddenly began to end in ia which means they belong to the Yavist party. They belong to the party of reform, to the old Jewish party. And so you get these Eah names with these very interesting endings, because now we're going back to the original text and these names in Yahu and ia Now for example, the Lachish name, Mataniyahu also appears as Elephantine at the same time when the Jews went up the Nile Sea as Metani, just as Metani in the Book of Mormon. Both forms as Methoniah and Methonai both appear in the Book of Mormon. Methoniah and Methonai in the Lakish letters you get Methoniah, Matanyahu because after the after the Persian after yes no after the Assyrian conquest they dropped the H, Iah, Yahu. Uh, but before then Lehi's time they still kept that. And so that we get iha endings, those funny iha endings that are so common in the Book of Mormon. So these endings, we have, as I say, the Nakish names, we have Matanyahu and Matani. And in the Book of Mormon, you have Matonia Matonaya and Matonai. And why the Yahu? Well, there's some other names here like that. These Yahu names, certainly, uh, Torxener says, the Harry Torxener was the one who edited, and he was the. The son of the first discoverer of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Harry Torxiener. these He says, These Yahoo's names are certainly the token of a change in the Judean relationship to Yahweh. These reforms, in some way, parallel the first reformation of Moses. He finds these Yahoo names a reflection of the act of general reformation inaugurated by King Josiah. Now, it's an interesting name. Who is the great reformer of the Constitution and the governor of the new law in Book of Mo? It's King Mosiah. The king, now, there, there's another of those I combining both Moses, the first reformer of the law, and Josiah, the second reformer of the law. He calls his name his son Mosiah. You see, the, uh, this is uh, King Benjamin, who is the great reformer of the law. And he names his son Mosiah. Just the thing to name him, you see. But these eon names are characteristic of Lehi's time, showing that he belonged to Jeremiah's party. And so we go on about the names, the activities of the prophet. Uh, then, this idea of. Well, the Rechabite deal and so forth, we want to talk about the... This is what we see in the Lakish letters and the Lehi story with, with relatively narrow circles of friends and relations. Clandestine flights, oh dear, the time is up now, because the most exciting story of all is how little Mulek escaped and how the Mulekites took off after all the rest of them had left with the lone survivor from the king's family who was the king. And, they were the Mulekites. Were they ever heard of again? Yes, they turned up in the Book of Mormon, of course. Well, we mentioned them the next time. These things never go as fast as we hope they will. And the portrait of Laban, which is absolutely marvelous, but is this Josh. Notice this. The Josh or Josh, he is the military governor of the city now, of, of Lankish. A, it's a large city. It's the second largest city, as well as a, a strongly fortified place. But he's the military governor, and he's in charge of everything, and the reckons, records are kept in his office. Well, who was Laban? He was military governor of Jerusalem, told him, they out by night, remember, in secret council with the elders, with the Sarim, and he was in his ceremonial armor when he met with them, and he, w- he could charge, remember, Laman and Lemuel said he's in charge of 50 men in the city, 10,000 men in the field, but he's in charge of the city police. He is the governor of the city, and the records are kept at his house, not because they are family records. He is related to Lehi, but that's where they know they can get their records But they kept, they, because they're kept in the house of Laban, the military governor. Not a likely place to keep the genealogy of the people, but that's where it was, and the same thing here. All the records were kept in that. Well, that would be, you see, uh, in, a case in, a, in a time of alarm for, uh, for safekeeping. That's the safest place to keep them. And sure enough, we learned from the Copper Scroll that when Jerusalem was threatened, you see, they took all the documents they could and hid them in various places around the city. They were quick to hide the garments, get them to a safe place, and that's what happened. That's probably why the brass plates and all the genealogy and everything were being held under guard, kept under lock and key by Laban, and he wouldn't let the brothers have them unless he, they paid him plenty, so they paid him plenty, and he said, April Fool. and, and uh, This typical intrigue, everybody's playing dirty, everybody's out for everything. It's such a marvelous picture of life in the world we live in, isn't it? You can't beat it. Good old Book of Mormon.